Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. And welcome to the Tesla Q2 2020 Financial Results Q&A and webcast. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker, Mr. Martin Vieca, Senior Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Sherry, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Tesla's second quarter 2020 Q&A webcast. I'm joined today by Elon Musk, Zachary Kirkhorn, and a number of other executives. Our Q2 results were announced at about 1.15 p.m. Pacific time in the update deck we published at the same link as this webcast. During this call, we will discuss our business outlook and make forward-looking statements. These comments are based on our predictions and expectations as of today. Actual events and results could differ materially due to a number of risks and uncertainties, including those mentioned in our most recent filings with the SEC. During the question and answer portion of today's call, please limit yourselves to one question and one follow-up. Please press star one now if you'd like to join the question queue. But before we jump into Q&A, Elon has some opening remarks. Elon? Uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the Tesla team for exceptional execution in the second quarter, despite uh, tremendous difficulties. Um, they've done an incredible job, and it's an, it's an honor to work with such a great team. Um, I mean, there were so many, so many challenges, too, too numerous to name, um, but the, they, they got it done, um, and just what, what a great group to, to work with. Um, like I said, it's just an honor to work with such a great team. Um, so, and as a result, we were able to achieve our fourth consecutive profit, profitable quarter, um, and although the automotive industry was down about 30% year-over-year in the first half of the year, uh, we managed to grow deliveries in the first half of the year. So despite um, that massive industry, industry decline, we actually went up. Um, we're also very excited to announce that we're going to be building our next Gigafactory uh, in, in Texas. Uh, it's going to be right um, near Austin. It's not, not It'll be about... I'll, I'll, I'll just go into a bit of detail on this, um, and then I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. Um, but the, lo the location is uh, five minutes from Austin International Airport and 15 minutes from downtown Austin, and it's about 2,000 acres. And we're going to make make it I think a factory that is going to be stunning. It's right on the Colorado River, uh, so we're actually going to have we're going to have a boardwalk uh, where there'll be a hiking, biking trail. It's going to basically be an ecological paradise. Birds in the trees, butterflies, fish in the stream, um, and it will be open to the public as well, so not, not closed and, and only Tesla. So if, if anyone's interested in working at uh, GigaTexas, Giga uh, uh, with engineering, production, whatever the case may be, um, uh, please let us know. This is, uh, we're going to be uh, doing a, a major, uh, major factory there, <coughs> uh, and it's also where we'll be doing uh, we'll be doing Cybertruck there, the Tesla Semi, and we'll be doing Model 3 and Y for the uh, eastern half of North America. Um, now, at the same time, I want to say we, we will continue to grow in California, uh, so, but we expect California to, to do Model S and X for worldwide consumption uh, and 3 and Y for the western half of North America. Um, and then we think probably also the Tesla Roadster uh, a future program would also make sense uh, in California. So I think this is a, a nice split between uh, Texas and California. And um, yeah, just to emphasize, we'll continue to grow in California, uh, but we'll, we'll be creating a, a massive uh, factory and uh, cyber truck and semi programs in Texas. So, uh, and, and I also want to just say, do a shout out to, to Tulsa um, and, and just say th thank you very much for to, to the the Tulsa team, um, the economic development team, and the governor. Uh, really, I was super impressed. 
the Tulsa team was, was super impressed, and uh, we will for sure strongly consider Tulsa for a future expansion of Tesla down the road. Um, let's see, is there anything more we want to say about? Mm. There's, there's a lot of information, so. Anything else, guys? All right, well, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Um, uh, we, we already started work on the facility, so um, some initial uh, construction work, so it's, it's already underway, um, started this weekend. Let's see, moving on to other subjects, uh, uh, solar, uh, we recently adjusted the pricing of our retrofit solar. Uh, so Tesla Solar is the lowest cost solar in the United States, uh, and we added a lowest, lowest cost guarantee and a money back guarantee. So we're very confident that people will, will have our solar product, whether it's the solar retrofit or solar roof. Um, our solar is now 30% cheaper than the U.S. average. After the federal, federal tax credit, uh, Tesla Solar now costs $1.49 per watt. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a very simple, highly automated, single-click experience. So definitely um, think about uh, Tesla, whether you want a new roof or Tesla solar roof, or you want solar on your existing roof. Either way, uh, we're, the, we're, the, we're the company to go to. Um, and, um, and then you can also get a power wall and, and, and have energy independence and, and be your own utility. So I think that, that product is really coming together. Um, and it's only going to get better later this year. So it's just, it's just very excited about that, that uh, business potential. On the you know, um, if additional technology stuff, we introduced the first uh, uh, production car with more than 400 miles range. So the current Tesla Model S uh, now has an EPA-certified range of 402 miles. Uh, I mean, you, basically, you can drive from L.A. to San Francisco nonstop and still have some uh, miles left over when you arrive. And, and this, this is at highway speeds, so you don't have to do anything, uh, drive slowly or anything, you drive, you just drive normally and, and uh, you know, go very, very long distances. Um, and then for full self-driving, we launched traffic lights and stop signs, uh, and we continue to improve that and make it more robust. Um, and we're currently uh, testing full self-driving software for uh, intersections and city streets and narrow streets. So um, I, I personally test the, the latest alpha build of full self-driving software when I, when I drive my car. Um, and it is really, I think, profoundly better than people realize. Um, yeah, really profoundly better. It's, it's, it's like amazing. So um, it's almost getting to the point where I, I can go from my house to work with no interventions, uh, despite going through construction and widely varying uh, situations. Um, so I, this is why I, I, I'm very confident about full self-driving functionality uh, being complete by the end of this year, it's, it's, because I'm literally driving it. Um, in conclusion, uh, uh, I'd like to again say thanks for all the hard work of the Tesla team, uh, achieving our first full year of profitability in the company history uh, was incredibly difficult, um, and, and just as a result of the hard work of a, a lot of people from Tesla worldwide. Um, and, and yeah, just think about the next, the next 12 to 18 months, uh, we'll have three new factories in place. Uh, you know, things are looking great with uh, Giga Berlin. Uh, and um, we'll have Cybertruck, Semi, Roadster, uh, full self-driving, there's so much to be excited about. Uh, it's really hard to kind of fit into this uh, call, but uh, the, the sheer amount of hardcore engineering, especially on the uh, you know, autonomy and the, the manufacturing engineering front is mind-blowing. Uh, and then, of course, there's Factory Day, which is you know, coming up pretty soon. Um, and I think that's, that's really going to surprise people by, by just how, how much there is to see. Um, so uh, with that, uh, thanks again for your support and our long-term mission. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, having a great journey with you to create amazing products and continue scaling it. And uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think, 
I've never been more optimistic or excited about the future of Tesla and the, uh, the history of the company. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think our CFO, Zachary Kirkhorn, has some remarks as well. Yeah, thanks, Martin. I want to start by thanking our employees, customers, and suppliers for your support over the last quarter. In particular to the Tesla team, I couldn't be more impressed with the hard work and the resiliency that you all have shown. On net income, overall, as Elon mentioned, we achieved our fourth sequential quarter of profitability. This is despite a significant impact to our financials as a result of suspended operations of our U.S. factories and field operations around the world. To ensure the business remained healthy, we took temporary action to reduce costs, including expenses related to personnel and non-critical path projects. The direct cost savings or the direct cost impact of the temporary shutdown was largely offset by these cost savings actions, although the costs were concentrated in COGS and the cost reductions were in both COGS and operating expenses. On automotive gross margin, excluding regulatory credits, this reduced sequentially from 20% to 18.7%. This sequential reduction is fully attributed to idle capacity charges and lower operational efficiency due to the various shutdowns. Despite these charges, we continue to make progress reducing our costs, particularly on Model Y in Fremont and Model 3 in Shanghai. Given the global macroeconomic context, we made the decision in Q2 to pass through savings to customers around the world on some of our products. With the release of stoplight and stop sign recognition and response, we recognized $48 million of deferred revenue in the period. The full profit impact on our P&L is less than half of this due to cost associated with FSD computer retrofits in the field. Regulatory credit revenue increased sequentially to $428 million. While difficult to forecast precisely, our best estimate of 2020 credit revenue is roughly double that of 2019. Services and other margin improved yet again, marking the fifth sequential quarter of improvement. In the energy business, our Megapack product achieved its first quarterly profit. We remain pr production constrained in this business and are continuing to work towards building additional capacity. And our solar installation business was impacted by permit office closures limiting installation volume. Stock-based comp increased from Q1 to Q2. This is driven almost entirely by an expense related to the next tranche of the CEO grant, as well as early vesting of the first tranche, which is reflected in SG&A within operating expenses. On cash flows, our cash balance increased to our highest level yet of $8.6 billion, which included free cash flows of over $400 million. This is a strong result on its own, despite an increase in capital expenses associated with Shanghai and Berlin, as well as movements in working capital. A few things to note on working capital, particularly accounts receivables. While our AR balance is usually about 20% of revenue, it can fluctuate depending upon a number of factors. First, overall less than 30% of our receivables is associated with new car sales. Second, due to payment terms associated with financing and enterprise customers, settlement timelines for certain methods of cash payments, and geographic mix of our deliveries, our cash balance and associated receivables are impacted significantly by how many cars are delivered in the final weeks and days of the quarter. Third, roughly 40% of the balance is attributed to payment terms on regulatory credit sales and statutory EV incentive programs, both of which have been increasing. Customer deposits reduce slightly as well. Note that as we transition to lower order fees across the world, the average deposit per order will continue to reduce, driving down this balance. As we look forward, Tesla was able to navigate through Q2 due to our agile and dynamic culture. We will continue to appropriately manage our cash flows through cost optimization and close working capital management. This is key as we remain focused on expanding production, scaling our operations, and preparing for the launch of three new factories over the next year and a half. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to questions from institutional investors first. The question number one is, as Tesla continues its journey towards the long-term goal of selling 20 million units per year, what are the most important vehicle programs that will drive volume growth over the next three to five years beyond Model 3, Y, and the Cybertruck? Cheaper, smaller versions of 3 and Y, or region-specific vehicles, or anything else? Well, I don't think we can comment on, you know, our detailed product roadmap beyond what's announced, because I think we'd, we'd want to reserve that for product launches. Um, 
but it would be reasonable to assume that we would make uh, a compact vehicle of some kind, um, you know, and, and probably a higher capacity passenger vehicle of some kind. Uh, you know, it's, th these are likely things at some point. Um, but I, I do think there's a long way to go with 3 and Y um, and with Cybertruck and Semi. You know, so it's, it's a long way to go with those. Um, I think we'll do the, the obvious things. Okay. The second question from Institutional is, uh, what is your vision for software at Tesla? What opportunities do you see for monetizing the installed base other than via FSD? Right now, by far, by far, FSD is just overwhelmingly the most important thing. Um, you know, I think the the upgrading of the fleet to full self-driving, um, essentially with an over-the-air software update, I mean, may go down as the, the the biggest asset value increase in history, as as a step change. You know, not the, maybe there's something bigger, but it certainly would be one of the biggest. I can't think of anything bigger. Um, so sort of a, so overnight, you know, a million. You know, depending exactly on when it happens and when it's allowed in various um, regulatory uh, jurisdictions, you'd have like I don't know, at least you know, a few million cars suddenly becoming five times more valuable or something like that. Um, it's only five times higher utility. You know, they go from like 12 hours a week of utility, something like that, or, or, or that's how many hours they're used, uh, to 60, something like that. You know. So everything else is pretty small by comparison. Um, now, when things do become full self-driving, so what are people going to do in the car? Well, I guess they're probably going to, want to do productivity and entertainment of some kind. You know, watch movies, play games, and do work. But that, that's that's in the future. Yeah, we're already putting some games and stuff on the car just for fun. Yeah. Yeah, we have been experimenting on that, and so um, you know, FSD remains by far and away the biggest opportunity in the near term. But we're putting the plumbing in place to um, be ready to scale other areas when the time is right. So premium connectivity subscription is something that we've put in place. Uh, and the ability to upgrade your vehicle through the app, for example, on acceleration boost, or upgrading a standard range Model 3 to a standard plus, adding rear heated seats. So these are things that uh, we have, and we're continuing to get feedback from the field and other things that we can launch, and we'll trickle those in with time. And yeah. But they're all very tiny compared with, like, the like the step change to full self-driving, depending upon how you calculate it, is probably worth, you know, at least $100,000 per car. So that's a lot of software you'd have to sell, you know, <laughs> in the app store or whatever, you know. Thank you. The third question is also about um, autopilot. Uh, what are the most important upcoming self-driving milestones, and how do you think about timing? Well, the, um, the, the actual major milestone that's happening right now is, is really a transition of the autonomy system or the cars like AI, if you will, from thinking about things in, um, I call it like two and a half D. <laughs> it's like thinking, it's basically taking like isolated pictures um, and and doing image recognition on the, on pictures that are partially correlated in time, but not not very well, uh, and transitioning to kind of a four D where you know it's it's like your which is video essentially you get. You're thinking about the world in three dimensions, and the fourth dimension being time. So that that architectural change, which is 
been underway for some time, but has not really been rolled out to anyone in the production fleet is what really matters for full self driving. Um, so, what, you know, what we've been doing thus far is really just been with like 2D, mostly 2D, and and and, and like I said, not well correlated in time. So, you just people just it's just hard to convey just how much better a, a fully 4D system would work. It does work. Um, it, it, it's capable of things that it that if you if you're just look, looking at things as individual pictures as opposed to video, like basically like you go from like individual pictures to uh, surround video. Um, this is fundamental. So the the the, the car will seem to have just like a giant improvement. Um, I know we'll probably roll it out later this year, um, but it, you know we'll be able to do traffic lights, stop turns, trust everything, you know, pretty much. Um, and then it will be a, a long march of n nines, essentially. How how many nines of reliability um, are okay? Um, so it'll definitely be way better than human, but how much better than human does it need to be? Um, so that, that, that that's actually going to be the real work. There's just a massive amount of work with each kind of order of magnitude of reliability. Um, but you'll see, you'll see it happen, and if you plot the points on a curve, it'll be kind of obvious where it's headed. Um, AI in general, I think, is something you know. I've been saying this, banging this AI drum for a decade. We should be concerned about where AI is going. Um, the people I see being the most wrong about AI are the ones who are very smart, because they can't imagine that a computer could be way smarter than them. That, that's the flaw in their logic. They're just way dumber than they think they are. Thank you. And the next question from this additional investor is, uh, please may you update us on Ilian Dreadnought. How has your thinking evolved and what is needed in order to get closer to fundamental physical limits? Well, we're putting a massive amount of effort into manufacturing engineering, the machine that makes the machine. There's probably 1,000%, maybe 10,000% more engineering required for the factory than for the, the product itself. Uh, so we're certainly making making progress. I mean, you know, battery and powertrain factory, Gigafactory Nevada is, you know, on an alien dreadnought version 0 0.5, something like that. You know, starting to approach version one. Um, we're, we're getting way better at making cars. You can see that in Giga Shanghai. Um, and you'll, you'll see that even more with uh, with Berlin. Um, and, and we're really changing the design of the car in order to make it more manufacturable. The, the fundamental architecture of, of Model Y will be different in Berlin. It, it may look the same, but it, the internals will be quite different and fundamentally more efficient uh, architecturally than, than what we've done to date. Um, hey, Drew, would you like to add to that? Uh, I, yeah, I was going to expand on that thought. I think um, part of the Alien Dreadnought concept is not just automation, but minimizing the number of process steps and complexity involved in the manufacturing system, which involves really integrating design and manufacturing across from like when the raw materials enter the factory to the finished goods exit. Yeah. Um, and, and we're learning so much through doing that. Yeah, vertical integration is extremely important for this. Yeah. Um, but the supply chain, if you, if, you, if you put like a GPS tracker on, on a molecule from when it got mined to when it was in a usable product, it would look insane. 
like in, in, it would be like, wow, it went around the world like six times. Um, so with vertical integration, maybe you can only go around the world once, you know, it's a huge improvement, or not even like half a, only go half a, I think if you get vertical integration alone, it could probably get you an order of magnitude improvement. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, Jerome, you want to? Yeah, I think the, the focus for us is uh, um, in increasing the um, CapEx uh, efficiency. This is something that uh, uh, we've been working very hard uh, for the past three years. Um, and you can see that uh, we can build new factories for less amount of money and much faster. Yeah. Uh, those things go together. Um, yeah, it's a better it's a better factory for less money in less time. Yeah, less money means less time. Yeah. So that's a, a, a great advantage, and um, we're also reducing this, and this still is a lot uh, the amount of inefficiencies. We want every operation to add value yeah. to the vehicle. Mm, value meaning moving the atoms closer to their final state. You know, so we do yeah. not want any robot that just moves things. Yes, or, or, or a person. It, 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 yeah, like, yeah. In fact, it's like we, we want to be super respectful of people's labor. If, yeah. we're, if we're asking somebody to do something, are we sure it's useful? Are, are we asking them to spend their time in a way that is respectful of their time? Um, but, but but it's like, wow, the potential for improvement is is tremendous. And like, I just want to be clear. Here at Tesla, we love manufacturing. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, and I, I really think more smart people should be working on manufacturing. It's and we like, want more people. Yes, we, we exactly. can't find enough <laughs> we, people. We, we, yeah. we do. If people are interested in designing new lines and uh, trying to do things different, you know, Tesla's got a job for you. And now we've got jobs yeah. everywhere. It's not only in California. Yeah. We've got jobs in China, in Berlin, in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And in California, if you, uh, so there's plenty of uh, exciting places, and all these places will do original work and challenging yes. and meaningful work. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it's actually extremely exciting for, and fulfilling to design new production systems. Um, and I think that, you know, for some reason I kind of got a bad rap, especially in the U.S. for a long time, and, and I think people didn't think that, Manufacturing, sort of, they thought of manufacturing as like, oh, it's just bore, some boring, just making copies or whatever. But actually, there's far more opportunity for innovation in manufacturing than in the product itself. Um, order magnitude. Uh, so, uh, it, like, if there's one thing that comes out of this call, it's like, hey, if 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 you want to help us invent amazing new manufacturing techniques. Um, and, and have input into the product itself. It's not like you just get tossed the product and say, hey, make this this product and it's a kind of a lousy design. You'd get If you're a manufacturer, you get to change the product design and say, hey, this, this product you're asking me to manufacture is dumb. <laughs> and they're like, great, let's fix it, you know? So, uh, it, 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 you know, at, at Tesla, if you work on manufacturing engineering, you don't just get force-fed a turd sandwich. You, you get to change the product design. So. You know, it's, it's, it's super exciting. And, and we evolved the lines, uh, even after they're built, they, this rapid evolution of the production system. So, um, And there's nothing more rewarding than going from zero cars an hour to yeah. 5,000 cars a, a week or 1,000 cars a day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like the long-term sustainable advantage of Tesla, I think, will be uh, manufacturing. So. Thank you very much. And the last question from institutional investor is, um, how many vehicles can Tesla produce in Texas? Well, right now, zero. <laughs> um, but uh, long term, a lot. <laughs> Our biggest property. Yeah, it's the biggest property, true. Okay, and now we can shift to retail investor questions on uh, say.com. The first one is, Tesla Energy seems widely ignored by Wall Street, despite Elon, <laughs> despite Elon comments about growth rate exceeding automotive. Could Tesla share more detail on current or planned projects to help investors better understand the business outlook? How disruptive is Tesla's autobitter technology? Yeah, well, I, I, I can't emphasize enough. I think long-term Tesla Energy will be of the, the, roughly the same size as Tesla Automotive. So. Uh, I mean, the energy business collectively is bigger than the automotive business. So you say, like, you know, how, how big is the energy sector? Bigger than automotive. Um, so 
and, and in order to achieve a sustainable energy future, we have to have sustainable energy generation, uh, which I think is going to be primarily solar uh, and, and, you know, set, followed by wind. And, and those are intermittent, so you need to have a lot of batteries to store the, um, store the energy because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So, uh, so there's like three elements of the sustainable energy future. Wind and solar, sustainable energy generation, uh, battery storage, and electric transport. Those three things. Um, and the mission of Tesla is to accelerate sustainable energy. So I, I can't emphasize enough the, 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 the like, yeah, the, 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 the battery and solar will both be enormous. Um, and they kind of have to be in order for us to have a sustainable future. Uh, and we've got a great product roadmap on that front as well. So we've been shipping the mega pack. It's very well received. Um, yeah, do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, I, I think the the mega pack is has represented itself and, and is uh, an integrated, rapidly deployable, you know, grid tied storage battery of mega megawatt hour scale. Um, uh, we're working with utilities, large and small, you know, not just utilities, but also just like microgrid and project developers of all type and building our own um, projects where it makes sense. Um, and uh, there's there's a lot of demand for the product, and we're growing the production uh, rates as, as fast as we can for that product. And then on AutoBidder, AutoBidder is, is basically autopilot for grid-tied batteries. It's an autonomous energy market participation system that, you know, does high-frequency trading and ensures... Well, that, that's a bad word. Sorry. Sorry. High frequency trading should be called front running. Sorry. Uh, we're not, not doing not that. Doing anything like that. No, it's, it's ensuring that the battery is doing everything it can to manage the grid intermittency yes. of the renewals, renewables and just grid intermittency of all kinds. I mean, you know, people turn their lights on and off, power plants turn on and off, yeah. factories ramp up and down, and batteries are great to, to solve those problems. Yeah, it, it, just, it does grid stabilization, yep. you know, at the millisecond level. Exactly. Uh, so it, it just ensures that things are super smooth. Um, it's, it's like a, you know, UPS, an uninterruptible power supply of enormous size. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But just it just ensures that this, the grid has smooth sailing. Um, and then the, the, the batteries, you know, the computers like all interact with each other and, and make sure that they're working together to make the grid uh, smooth. Um, and this can be done with the power walls and, and the mega packs and the power packs all working together um, and interacting with third-party uh, systems as well. Yeah, centrally or distributed, it does both. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, yeah. I mean, it's necessary in order to solve the sustainable energy problem. So. Yeah, you can't plan power plants on the hourly scale in a renewable world. You need to plan, you need to, optimize them on a minute-by-minute minute scale, and that's what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the real limitation on Tesla growth is uh, is cell production at, at an affordable price. That's the, that's the real limit. Um, so, um, you know, that's why we're, you know, we're, we're going to talk about a lot more about this on Battery Day um, because this is a fundamental scaling constraint. And, and, and any part of that, at that supply chain or processing of, uh, at the cell level will, will will be the limiting factor. So, uh, you know, whatever it may be, um, anywhere from mining to refining, and there's many steps on the ref refining to, you know, cathode and anode formation, cell formation, uh, whatever the choke point is, that will set the growth, the growth rate. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we um, we expect to expand our business with Panasonic, with CATL, with LG, possibly with others. Um, um, and, uh, you know, and there's a lot more to say on that front on Battery Day. Thank you. Uh, the second question is, uh, now that it's time to bring the Tesla Semi to volume production, can you share more detail on production plans? What weekly production rate is considered volume production, and uh, when does Tesla expect to reach that rate? Sure. Yeah, so we'll start production next year, as we announced before. I'm personally very excited about the project. I can't wait. Uh, we do have a few trucks that keep driving around and that keep delivering cars, uh, but uh, we're going to accelerate that. 
I want to be clear that uh, the first few units uh, we will use ourselves, uh, Tesla, to carry our own freight, uh, probably mostly between Fremont and Reno, which is a fantastic test route. Uh, we want to prove that we have re really good reliability. I mean, so far, the early units do have it, but we'll, we'll do that at the larger scale. And we have also promised uh, some early units to some um, long-term, very patient and supportive customers, and we'll do that. Uh, now we have uh, more sales coming up in uh, next year, as uh, Elon just pointed out, so we can uh, increase uh, the um, uh, diversity of the portfolio. It didn't make sense up to now to do it, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, we'll be ready, and um, that's yeah, maybe a little biased. I'm very excited about this, and uh, we have a lot of very unique technology that we're always dreaming about that we will be putting into that semi. It will be just awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just there's like two general classes of, of cell. There's like iron phosphate and then the nickel-based. Uh, nic the nic nickel-based cells have um, higher energy density, so longer range. Uh, obviously, those are needed for something like a semi, um, where you know every every unit of mass that you add in battery pack, you have to subtract in cargo. So you, it's very important to have a mass efficient and long range uh, pack for for batteries. Um, however, what we're seeing with uh, our passenger vehicles is that our powertrain efficiency and uh, sort of tire efficiency, you know, drag coefficient, like basically all of the things that, like, you know, our HVAC uh, go, going to a heat pump, um, basically our, our total vehicle efficiency has gotten good enough with uh, Model 3, for example, that we actually are comfortable having an iron phosphate battery pack in Model 3 in China, um, and, you know, and that, that'll be in volume production later this year. Um, so we think that, you know, getting a range uh, that is in the high 200s, uh, you know, basically, but we think you probably get a, a range of almost 300 miles uh, with an iron phosphate pack, taking into account a whole bunch of, uh, of powertrain and other vehicle efficiencies. Um, and, and that, that frees up a lot of capacity for things like the Tesla Semi um, and, and uh, you know, other projects that require higher energy density. So, yeah, so you, you have like two, two supply chains that you can tap into, iron phosphate or, or, or nickel. Um, we use very little cobalt in, in, in our system already, and that's, that may trend, you know, to zero on, so it's just really about nickel. Thank you. Uh, the next question is: uh, Tesla recently decided not to produce standard range version of Model Y. No longer offers uh, offers a standard range Model S or X, and has announced ramping of the semi. Does this shift from smaller pack vehicles suggest that Tesla is not battery constrained as in the past? What are the biggest constraints now? Well, I'd just like to reemphasize, emphasize, you know, any mining companies out there, please mine more nickel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wherever you are in the world, please mine more nickel. And, and, and don't wait for nickel to go back to some long, some high point that you experienced some five years ago or whatever. Go for efficient, you know, obviously environmentally friendly nickel mining at high volume. If Tesla will give you a con giant contract for a long period of time, <laughs> if you mine nickel efficiently and in an environmentally sensitive way. <laughs> so, hopefully, this message goes out to all mining companies. Uh, please get nickel. <laughs> um, with re with regard to passenger vehicles, uh, I, th I think the new normal for range is going to be. Just in U.S. EPA terms, uh, you know, approximately 300 miles. So, I think people will really come to expect that as, um, you know, some number close to 300 miles as, as normal. You know, that that that's a standard expectation. Um, uh, because you do need to take into account, like, you know, is it very hot outside or very cold, or, you know, are you driving? Up a tall mountain um, with with a full load, uh, and and it's uh, you know people don't want to have a 
you know, get get to the destination with like uh, 10 miles range. They, they want some reasonable, reasonable margin. So I think 300 is going to be really, or close to 300 is going to be the new normal. Yeah, call it 500 kilometers, basically, roughly. Thank you. And next question on insurance. Um, what is the holdup for Tesla insurance outside of California? Will you release numbers uh, from that part of the business? Will Tesla insurance be required to participate in the Tesla ride-hailing network as a driver? Sure. Um, yeah, we were joking before the call that we get the quarterly insurance question that pops up on say.com here. Um, we are working super hard on insurance. Uh, I'll go into a little bit more detail here than I have on the past. But, uh, currently, we have a product in California, as I've described before. It's been quite well received, and um, I, I would largely describe it as a fairly standard insurance product with elements of it that are unique to our cars. So you can think of it as a, a version one of Tesla insurance. Um, yeah, well, version 0 0.9 in the beginning, at least. 0 yeah. 0.9. Yeah. <laughs> What we're working on now um, is we can call it version two or we can call it the first version of our telematics product. Yeah. And so really, ultimately, where we want to get to with Tesla Insurance is to be able to use the data that's captured in the car uh, in the driving profile of the person in the car to be able to assess correlations and probabilities of crash and, and be able then to assess a premium on a monthly basis for that customer. And uh, what makes this very exciting for us is the, the amount of data that is available with the customer's permission to use uh, is is not available in any other product or any other vehicle in the world. So this gives us a unique advantage in terms of information. And you know we have a decision point here where we could take the California product and replicate that into other states, or we could delay delay going into additional states and instead put more effort into the telematic side of this. And, and we chose the latter. And where we are now is um, nearly complete with the uh, risk and cost analysis associated with the first version of the telematics product. We hope to be filing that in a handful of states with regulators very shortly. And uh, assuming that regulatory approvals go uh, smoothly, we hope to have this uh, in a handful of states by the end of the year. And um, and then you know, we'll continue to file for approval in additional states. With regulatory approval there, we'll continue to roll this out nationwide as quickly as we can. And then that product, as we continue to collect more data and we iterate on it, will be version 2, version 3, et cetera, as we continue to refine that. Yeah. I mean, at, at the heart of, of being competitive with insurance is what is the accuracy of your information? Like, are you dealing with – are you forced to assess people statistically looking in the rearview mirror, or can you – uh, assess people individually uh, looking ahead with, uh, with with smart projections and inform the the, the driver that uh, that of, of how they may reduce their what, what actions they can take to reduce their insurance um, as I was alluding to it's like if, okay you're driving too fast you're you know doing this or that or the other thing it's like if you if you want to pay more for insurance you can uh, but if you want to pay less you know then uh, please don't drive so crazy. <laughs> um, then, uh, then people can make a choice. Like, okay, they want to drive aggressively. In the case, there'll be higher higher insurance, or they want to be you know, more careful in the driving, and it'll be pay, pay less. Um, it's, it's also actually very helpful for us to have a feedback loop to see what is driving insurance expense. A lot of it is just it's like um, you have like little fender bender. And the net fender bender, because of the way that the body collision repair was being done, you know, cost like fifteen thousand dollars or something crazy. And we're like, well, how? and and then we can actually adjust the design of the car and adjust how the repair is done to actually have the fundamental cost of solving that problem be less. Um, so this this has helped us unearth a, a whole bunch of silly things that we were doing basically um, without realizing it. Um, which is this is the problem with in general with insurance is like if, if the insurance is like all you can eat then it, the feedback loop for improvement is weak. So uh, this, this gives us a great feedback loop for improvement gives us basically a fundamentally better insurance product. Um, I'd also like to say this on, in the spirit of recruiting because if, if there's one thing I'd like to come out of this call it's um, 
that a, a lot of great people want to join Tesla. That's the number one thing I'd like out of this call. Um, and on the insurance front, I want to be clear, we're, we're building a great, like a major insurance company. Um, if you're interested in revolutionary insurance, please join Tesla. I, I would love to have some high-energy actuaries, especially. I have great respect for the actuarial profession. Uh, your guys are great at math. Uh, please join Tesla, especially if you want to change things <laughs> and you're annoyed by how slow the, the industry is. Those are the place to be. We want, we want revolutionary actuaries. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. And in the oh, interest sorry, there, sorry, there was a second part of this question. Will Tesla insurance be required to participate in, in the Tesla ride-hailing network? And so um, I think I've answered this before in prior calls, but by the time the ride-hailing network is available, we will Tesla insurance coverage will be provided for yeah. folks who are in this network. Yeah. Um, it, it's a different type of insurance because of the use of the car. Uh, it, it's not decided whether third-party insurance versus Tesla insurance will be required. There might be some things we need to think through there. But uh, Tesla insurance at least will be working, yeah. working for the ride-hailing network. Okay. Thank you very much. And in the interest of time, let's go to the Q&A of analysts on the line. Thank you. Our first question will come from Dan Levy with Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, I'll, I'll ask a, a question on the quarter and then just a question more broadly on strategy. Um, just on the quarter, if you could give us an update on gross margin. Was China accretive to gross margin in the second quarter? And give us an idea of how far off Model Y gross margin uh, was versus Fremont Model 3, and then just more broadly on strategy. It seems like your approach to uh, insourcing is varying by region. You're uh, insourcing a lot more in Fremont, but you're relying a lot more on the supply chain in Shanghai. What do you expect your approach to be on insourcing when you eventually open up Berlin and uh, what your Texas factory is going to be? Thank you. Yep. Just to start with the gross margin questions, uh, we did see progress on gross margins in China, uh, and that was despite pricing action that was taken. Uh, the factory is still not running at full capacity yet as it continues to ramp, uh, so we think there's continued opportunity to optimize the cost structure there. Um, Model Y, uh, as we mentioned last quarter, was profitable in its first quarter of production. Uh, and despite the um, inefficiencies that we had due to the shutdown, we did see a pretty substantial improvement in the Model Y margin. And, and as, we, as we said before, the Model Y cost structure and Model 3 cost structure are, will converge. They're not quite there. Model Y is still slightly more expensive than Model 3, and it's not yet at full production. Uh, and with Model Y carrying a slightly higher price point, it, you can kind of back into the math there on the relative gross margins. Yeah, I mean, the, the Shanghai factory is a pretty big factory. Um, but and, and there's, it's, it's continuing to do more and more uh, internally, uh, but it, it, it's also the, the thing that's really helping is like uh, there were previously a ton of parts that were made in other parts of the world that were being shipped to Shanghai uh, from from every part of the world, um, and uh, just locally sourcing uh, those components makes a massive difference to the cost of the vehicle, um, and the I mean the proportion of local sourcing has literally been rising at like five to ten percent a month. Uh, from forty, it was like forty percent at the beginning of this year, or something like that. It, you know, it'll be like eighty percent. You know, by the end of this year, maybe more. There is a, also a, a lot of very strong, very competent, and very eager suppliers around the factory in Shanghai. Yeah, I'd say like the suppliers in China have been extremely competitive, possibly yep. the most competitive in the world. And so far, you know, we're in negotiations with, uh, for, for Berlin, and we've awarded a lot of business. Also, a lot of uh, suppliers in, uh, in Germany or uh, the rest of Europe that are eager to support uh, the factory in Berlin. Yeah, yeah. well, obviously, Germany has a, a, a great automotive uh, industry and, and supply chain. So actually, a ton, ton of, this, of, of our, our suppliers are in, in Germany within like a, a few hundred kilometers of the factory. Thank you very much. Let's go to the next question, please. Our next question will come from Tony Sakanagi, Tony Sakanagi with Bernstein. Please go ahead. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, you mentioned in the uh, slide deck a couple of times 
that you were pleased with gross margin, uh, with uh, PTI margin progress, and you expect it to achieve industry-leading operating margins over time. Uh, maybe you could shed a little light on that. Um, you know, industry-leading for luxury vendors is 8 to 10% PTI. For Porsche, who's smaller, it's 17. For mass market vendors, it's 5 to 8. What do we think about, and how much uh, ultimately do you believe that uh, EV credits will contribute to that margin? Because I know your margin's been 5% over the last 12 months, but it's actually less than 1% excluding EV credits. So it's a, a four-point four contribution right now. How do we think about ultimately what industry-leading margins are and how much of that you think is coming from uh, EV credits, regulatory credits? And uh, I have a follow-up, please. Sure. Um, I've mentioned this before in terms of regulatory credits. You know, we, we manage the business, uh, or said differently, we, we don't manage the business with the assumption that regulatory credits will contribute in a significant way to the future. Um, yeah, I do expect regulatory credit revenue to double in 2020 relative to 2019, uh, and, and it'll continue for some period of time, but eventually the stream of regulatory credits will reduce. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, it's worth noting that uh, um, we received, you know, buyers of our car in the U.S. received uh, zero federal tax credit, um, whereas uh, many of our competitors are that they get a $7,500 tax credit, um, and yet our sales have continued to do well. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and so what we see is a continued decline in the cost to produce, manufacture, and distribute our cars. That cost curve, even for mature products like the S and the X continues to come down as we do work on that. Model 3, which is our second most mature product, that continues to come down. You then layer on top of that, as Elon was discussing earlier, the potential for software-based revenue, particularly full self-driving. You know, there's the revenue recognition portion of that that we have today. You know, that will expand as we, um, as we release more features. And then you can layer on top of that, in the future, uh, revenue from a ride-hailing network. Uh, operating expenses continue to come down um, and become more efficient as a percentage of revenue. We're, we're, there's still incredible opportunity there that we work, we're working on, particularly on how customers interact with the company from sales and service and, um, and what their flow is and how we get cars to them. So we continue to see efficiencies there. So you know, in the medium term here, you know, what our modeling shows is you know, in the low low teens operating margin level, and uh, I think there continues to drive the opportunity to drive that up. So I hear your point on the 5% and the 1%. You know, we're on a bit of a journey here, and we're continuing to make progress. Thank you. And if I could just follow up, Elon, you've talked a lot about the mission of the company and, and uh, you know, and, uh, and and really trying to drive uh, uh, EV uh, adoption globally. So how do you think about that trade-off between driving towards industry-leading profitability yet trying to make your cars more affordable and broader? It, it, it feels like historically you've always picked the path of I'd rather drive more growth and more adoption because ultimately that's – the mission of the company, and we even saw it a little bit this quarter with, with price reductions. You could have probably kept price where it is, sold some units, and had better profits, but, but that's been an ongoing choice that Tesla as a company has made. So how do, we, how do you personally think about that trade-off between, um, you know, even if you were to get to industry-leading margins, wouldn't you be inclined to give more of that back to drive a greater adoption more quickly? Well, I think we actually achieve both when you factor in autonomy. Um, I think we can go go way beyond industry margins and and have the car be affordable to more and more people, and, and eventually, you know, almost everyone, almost everyone, uh, when factoring in autonomy. Um, but that is really a mega game changer, uh, giga, giga giga game changer. Um, yeah, uh, but I, I mean, it is important for people to, to distinguish between two things. There's value for money that a product has, and then there's affordability. And, and uh, you know, even if you 
rail value for money and have value for money like infinite. If people do not have enough, if people do not have enough money in the bank account to buy the car, they simply cannot. So then you just have this like awesome thing that nobody can buy. So uh, it is important to make the car affordable. We will not succeed in our mission if we do not make cars affordable. Um, like the thing that bugs me the most about where we are right now is that our cars are not affordable enough. Uh, we need to we need to fix that. So we're all making progress in that regard. Um, just sort of steadily making progress. Um, you know, so yeah, um, like we, we we need to, you know, not go bankrupt. Obviously, that's important because that will fail in our mission. Um, but we're not trying to be super profitable either. Obviously, we're like, you know, profitability is like 1% or something, you know, this 1% or 2%. It's not, it's not crazy. Um, last quarter was only 0.1%. So we want to be profitable. Like, I think just we want to be like slightly profitable and maximize growth and make the cars as affordable as possible. That's like what, what we're trying to achieve. Thank you. Let's go to the next question, please. Our next question will come from Emmanuel Rossmore with Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Um, could you please characterize the current near-term demand environment for your vehicles? These, these are obviously unusual times. Um, I think back in Q1, you had indicated record backlog, um, I guess, at the beginning of this past quarter. But I haven't seen any specific comments about New orders or backlog in the release today. So, can, can you give us some color? Uh, demand is not our problem. Definitely not. Uh, you know, we do have some production supply chain challenge that, challenges we're trying to solve right now. Um, you know, for example, the Model Y rear body casting. Obviously, because it's new technology, it's been tricky to uh, maintain rate and, and keep growing the the rate for Model Y casting, uh, which is it's a two-piece casting with a bunch, and then there's about a half a dozen other parts that are added on um, th that will transition to a one-piece casting. In fact, I'm pretty super excited about this. We're gonna have a giant. The world's biggest casting press uh, is getting assembled right now, actually in Fremont, uh, for the Model Y rear body casting. Um, it's enormous and looks awesome. Um, so. It's like our, the things that are troubling us right now are not demand, but they are um, just a, a bunch of firefighting on supply chain and production uh, issues. Okay, so, so to put it, yeah. sorry, yeah, but don't worry about demand. <laughs> That's not the issue. Okay, so when you're yeah. saying achieving 500,000 deliveries has has become more difficult, was it really just a function of the the recent shutdowns and and some of these? Uh, uh, in the supply dynamics, yeah, it's it's not it's not to do with demand. It's really just a production issue. It's 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 pretty hard when you've got like you know a global supply chain and it's kind of whatever the most effective part of that global supply chain is that sets your rate. You know, so I mean the number of rabbits we've had to pull out of a hat for supply chain is insane. Team's done an amazing job. Um, so I think it also so, so yeah, some of our costs were related to having to, you know, use a lot of airplanes to get parts around um, because of part shortages. Um, so we'll hopefully use fewer airplanes, um, but that, that will improve our costs. But it's uh, demand exceeds supply right now. So that's where we are right now. Thank you very much. And the last question, please. Our last question today will come from Felipe Huthois with Jeffries. Please go ahead. Um, yes, good afternoon, and thank you. Um, you, you mentioned a few times that the, um, the, the constraint to growth is, is battery capacity still. And I was hoping you could clarify the, the scope of the Berlin plants you're building right now. Um, will there be um, no battery capacity consistent with the amount of assembly volume you expect to come out of Berlin? And, um, and if not, will you be able to source your battery requirements out of Europe, or will you have to import um, batteries 
from outside Europe to uh, to uh, to ensure production in Berlin. Okay, well, we, don't, we we can't say too much about this except that we're there will be local cell production, um, and uh, that will that will serve the needs of the Berlin factory. Is that I, I mean. I no, that's 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 straightforward enough. I think I, just adding to what you said earlier about um, talent and people. Yes. Like the same goes uh, in all areas of cell. Yes. Supply chain, manufacturing, materials, design. Um, we are solving this problem, and it, it, we, I mean, we're, we're we're treating it like any other problem that we have solved. We will solve this problem, and we yeah. want talented people to join us as we solve this problem. Yes, and, and, and like, uh, to my biggest concern for getting up talented uh, people is, is probably Berlin because the labor labor mo mobility in Europe is uh, not is low. Uh, I would recommend changing this. <laughs> um, like, if somebody wants to leave and join another company, sometimes they have to spend six months on garden leave. It's called garden, you know, hang out in the garden basically. Um, and like, this doesn't this is not a good use of people's time, you know. I mean, if they want us to hang out in the garden, that's fine, but they shouldn't have to. Um, Thank you. I mean, those who know Europe will know what I'm talking about. Philip, do we have a follow-up question? No, that's fine. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, everyone, for um, joining this call, and uh, thank you for all your good questions, and we'll speak to you again in about three months. Yeah, maybe sooner with battery. Thank All right, you. thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.